Hey guys, this is Don Airy from Deep Purple and you are listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest bands in rock history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode number 82, Rainbow Down to Earth Part 2. And coming to you from the frosty rained over suburbs of Chicago, I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry. And coming to you from the suburbs of Providence, your co-host, John Renovations Matola. Ah, renovations. Tell us about your renovations. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you asked, because it's all that I've been talking about today. <laughs> tell, tell me as if you haven't been telling me about it all day. Uh, well, not that anybody, including our, our guest today, cared at all. <laughs> My entire house is going under interior renovation and getting uh new flooring put in which has turned my house into a disaster with dust all over the place uh new floors new carpeting um and so i got the floors replaced today most of them they ran they ran out of flooring right at the right before my front hallway so i'm just kind of walking on concrete for a few days or they didn't whatever. measure like to see that they had the right amount of flooring well he, <laughs> He said he did. <laughs> but like I came walking in, I'm like, they're like, well, bye. And I was like, uh, where's the rest of it? They're like, we'll be back Tuesday. And I'm like, okay, great. Thanks. Tuesday next week. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, because they have to get it in and it takes, it takes a while to get it. And whatever it is, it always takes a while for it to get in. So, gotcha. um, but the rest of the house is beautiful. It's all engineered hardwoods. Love it. Is it's the hardwood the in, in the room you're in right now? Uh, no. Okay. No, this is the only, this is the room is uh carpeting. My, my bedroom and my den is carpets and the rest of the house, it was like this, like cheap, like shitty carpet, okay. you know, that they put into all these tight places, you know, before you move in. So this got rid of it. And, um, yeah. So then I'm just like, all right, let me, let me just clean up some of this dust so I can make some food. And then I open up underneath my, the sink in my kitchen. And it's just like, there's just a big, just a big flood. And I'm like, Oh, great. And so now my sink is leaking and I have to buy a new garbage disposal. So John, this old house, Matola, (laughs) we got to go back and change it. This is your (laughs) co-host, John, this old house, Matola. (laughs) John, this old house, Vila. Oh, but anyways, maybe some, um, maybe at, some at track the, lighting would help. Remember, my, he had that, that commercial. My cousin Jeff would always just loved it because he goes into uh, he's like talking to some lady in her kitchen. He's like, how do you like a kitchen? He's like, I don't know. It's a little dark. And he looks up and he says, oh, maybe some track lighting would help. <laughs> and Jeff always thought it was like, wow, you really need the expertise of Bob Vila to figure out that putting some lights in will make it less dark. <laughs> Um, maybe she did. Maybe she's stupid. <laughs> but they didn't really tell you. They didn't go into her backstory in the commercial. Like, by the way, this lady is really stupid. This lady, this lady knows as as little as John at this old house in Nicola. <laughs> I don't know anything. And so actually, that's not true. The one thing that I can do is replace light fixtures. So there you go. Which I have been doing around the house because I have those stock ones, you know, the just the regular, you know, round frosted glass thing, you know, on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've been getting some, some nice ones, you know, just like flipping off those power switches, getting up there on the wires, twisting them up. Oh yeah. yeah. That Almost. I can do. That I can do too. Uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, because when we lived in apartments, she would always be like, um, she would always want to do all this work on the apartments, paint them and everything. I'm like, ah, oh, we don't own this. Let's who cares? Let's not even do anything. Right. So she, in one of our apartments in New York, she was like, I, oh, I don't like the light fixture. I would really like to do a light fixture. She's like, can you replace those? And I was like, no, <laughs> she's like, they, they can't be. I was like, no, it's, it's not possible. <laughs> and then years later, she discovered that I was lying to her. 
because I just didn't want to do it. But then, you know, I, I always and then that I ended up paying for it by replacing many light fixtures. I, I always thought that was a strange thing, though, is like people that, like, I mean, I get cleaning up an apartment or oh, sure. like, you know, doing like sprucing it up, maybe like, you know, the decorating type stuff. But I never understood the people that would want to like do improvements to an apartment. Oh, like, yeah, let's paint. Let's, you know, let's do structural stuff. You know, it's like, why? You're just like, you're improving somebody else's home. Yeah. You know, it's not worth it to you in the end. And like, you know, it, most landlords prohibit that stuff anyway. They don't want you painting their house. Yeah, well, the, you can, you know, but you'll have to paint it back to plain white when you leave. And let's face right. it, that's just never going to happen. So, like, last apartment, we moved kind of, I don't want to say suddenly, but we didn't know we were going to move quite when we did. Mm-hmm. So they were like, um, oh, we're going to charge you or whatever. You know, we're going to take it out of your security deposit because you didn't paint the wall. Yeah, they probably bought, like, $13 worth of white paint and painted the walls, like, probably in the, sh- the shabbiest possible way after we left and made a few hundred dollars off of us but <laughs> that's how it goes yeah anyway you know we would like to uh kick off the show as we always do by thanking our wonderful supporters there's a few different ways you can support our podcast one become a patron on patreon two donate on paypal which is kind of the same thing and then, of course, three, leave us a five-star rating on Apple's podcasts, which still is very lonely. It's very lonely. Not a lot of, uh, not a lot of activity on the, uh, on the Apple podcast. Somebody really, I mean, we, we've only got 42 reviews on Apple podcasts, and I know for a fact that we have at least 43 um, listeners. So please, listener number 43. At this point, we could just track you down. We know we know exactly who you are that didn't write a review. So please write us a nice review. Give us a five star. We'll read it on the show. But thanks to our patrons at the $25 Super Trooper tier, Steve Seaborg of NameOnAnything.com and AllTheWorldsOfStage.net. At the $20 Shades of Deep Pockets tier, Ryan M. The $15 Highball Shooter tier, Alan Ain't Too Proud to Beg. The Turn It Up to $11 tier, Frank Teelgard Mortensen and Clay Wambacher. The $10 Someone Came tier, Gerald Kelly. At the episode $6.66 tier, Richard Fusey via PayPal. And hey-o! Hey-o! Patron upgrade. And a new tier is created. The $5.99 nice price tier. Created by our (laughs) former $5 patron, Fielding Fowler. And he says this. Too many people at the $5 tier. I changed mine to $5.99 to separate myself from the unwashed. Thinking maybe you call it the nice price tier. What do you say? Well, I say that's a fantastic idea, Fielding. Thank you for upgrading your tier. Love it. I wonder if somebody's going to outdo him at $6 or $6.01. We'll never know. The $5 money lender tier. Greg Sealby, John Convery, Arthur Smith, German Heindel, Adrian Hernandez, and Kenny Wymore. The $3 nobody's perfect tier. Peter Gardo, Ian DeRosier, Mark Roback, Anton Glaving, and Will Porter. And at the $1 made-up name tier, Els Murders, Spacey Noodles, The Abominable Leaky Mausoleum, and Michael Vader. Thank you very much for all of your support. A big shout-out to our brothers at the Deep Dive Podcast. We've got Sabbath Bloody Podcast, Skinnered Reconsidered, T-Bones Prime Cuts, Coming to you soon with a new podcast in the lap of the pods, the queen podcast and the magicians podcast, which as you are listening to this will have happened just the previous week. So it's debuting on November. Well, it, it did debut on November 3rd, assuming that we're recording this live. Um, so, yeah, by this point, you will have listened to at least one episode of that. So I can't wait to check it out when it releases with our buddy Scott yeah, Haskin. And let me just clarify that um, from now on, all of the patron money will be going to my home repairs. So I'd like to thank everybody for the uh, because I'm going broke over here. So thank you to our patrons for uh, upgrading my home. Uh, back to you, Nate. Yes. Well, previously, we've only used it on like Deep Purple books and stuff, but we're going to buy the first ever garbage disposal <laughs> with, with our PayPal earnings. Oh, good Lord. Um. Big uh, thanks to, of course, Jorg Planer, essential Twitter follow. Thank you for all of your support. And then, um, of course, uh, you know, some updates. Uh, just a reminder, donate to the Tommy Bolin Memorial Statue Fund. Uh, 
very worthy cause. Let's see. Let's let's check out and check in on the Tommy Bullen Memorial yeah. Fund. There's, yeah, where are we at? They're still short. They're at three thousand uh, three hundred and twenty-nine dollars. Looking for twenty, almost twenty-three thousand. So I see Kenny Wymore, the most recent contributor. Thank you, Kenny. Uh, so our patrons are stepping up and helping. And I think you get a cool shirt too if you uh, if you donate to that. I know I did. Um, so thank you, everybody. Very cool stuff. All right, so this week we have Martin Popoff joining us, who needs no introduction, the unbelievable author of so many great books on heavy metal. And I've I've got, I think, your your most of your purple related stuff right oh. here. <laughs> uh, Martin, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me uh, back, guys. Excellent. So so last week uh, in our show, we, we discussed um, the Down to Earth album. And of course, you sprung to mind because I've heard you on a number of occasions and in your books talk about your love for this album and just wanted to get your take on it. But before that, like, can you give us like a little bit of your background of like, how did you get into being this prolific author of approaching 100 books on, on different metal and rock uh, bands? Well, basically 57 years old. So I've been a fan since about 1973, I'd say at 10 years old and probably somewhat of a music expert by 76, 77, just loved all this heavy stuff. Right. And was just a fan and had no, no link to any of it. Um, and then eventually I did a self-published book of, uh, of just record reviews, 1942 record reviews called Rick Kills Man, 25 years recorded hard rock and heavy metal. And, um, you know, we had a print broker business and all this. So I felt comfortable with that process of doing self-publishing but the big thing that happened is uh i moved to toronto 88 um met tim henderson tim henderson was running the big hmv heavy metal department here um and uh he had done a lot of writing over the years he was breaking away from drew masters and meat magazine started brave words and bloody knuckles i started that with him we made the first few issues on my photocopier um and basically that started the whole thing off uh that earlier book got republished in 97 and then just doing all these interviews with bands and writing more and more reviews it just fell into okay well i've got 15, 20 interviews with this band, uh, or, you know, or 10, and I can add a few more maybe over the next few years. Maybe I got a book here and just, I think the first, you know what, I think possibly my very first book on a band was that old thin, old deep purple book getting tighter, right? Which needs a big, big update now because that was my earliest and least professional of all of them. Right. Um, but at one day I want to take that and the, and the uh, castle full of rascals and combine it and update them. And cause I've been doing that a lot with uh, recent books. The rainbow. I'm, I'm quite proud of the rainbow book now as sensitive to light. It's a nice, big, thick, well-updated book from a much, much earlier version. Right. Yeah. Um, Fantastic. So, yeah. So, so basically I just started interviewing tons of bands and enjoying it. And in the year 2000, I went full time and then, you know, the book stuff really ramps up when kind of everything falls away. The magazine went out of print, although we're still a website in 2008. And then, you know, the music industry with things, physical product falling by the wayside, the industry kind of shrank. And so, you know, not doing a lot of bios and liner notes and not writing for five magazines anymore. Uh, so at that point, you know, it just becomes, I'm almost like a full-time regular book writer guy. So it may look like a lot of output, but you know, I'm one of the rare guys who this is the main job every day is, is trying to get these books cranked out and selling a mail order for my website and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's, uh, that's the long and short of it. Awesome. So how, how did you, what was your entry point with deep purple then? How did you get into them? I really can't remember. I mean, it would probably have been around 72. Um, I would say around 72 at nine years old. I remember lots and lots of albums kind of coming, coming into my life. So it could have been machine head. I don't think it was in rock. Um, could have been burn. I mean, I mean, um, could have been fireball. Um, but, uh, but yeah, around that time, um, and definitely I remember, you know, I remember getting uh, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow as a new release and knowing what it was. So that was, I was 12. So basically all the, all the rainbows as new releases come to think of it, for sure. Um, so yeah, just, uh, just a, a gradual thing. I don't know. I get asked that question a lot about bands and I, and I'm pretty hazy on a lot of them. Like, like what was the first one or when the first one came? So you have a, 
uh, got so much output of all your books and and also your your videos that you're doing. You've been on Pete Pardo's show, which has uh, been great lately. Uh, you also do the Contrarians, which kind of um, which I really enjoyed. And uh, the, what we're going to talk about today is kind of a contrarian view. Is is this being one of your favorite albums? Is is Down to Earth? What about it? Uh, speaks to you why do you like it so much more above the more standard picks well uh various reasons i mean i would say number one um definitely the first one's not even in the running rising definitely in the running and that would probably be second long live rock and roll and rising are are a little boxy on the recording side of things and i i think there are you know most fans would argue that there are a few patchy songs on there um i just feel like it all came together um, on Down to Earth. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that it's the only album with a certain lead singer, Graham Bonnet, but he's a great lead singer. You know, I'm not crazy about the whole storyline. Like this is him just basically entering the hard rock realm for the first time. So he's not really writing this stuff, unfortunately. It's more of a Roger Glover joint putting this thing together, Roger and Richie, I suppose. Um, but I just love the fact that it's actually, you know, it, it drives me crazy when people call it a poppy album because it's nowhere near as poppy. It's not really that poppy at all. Um, and it's only slightly, slightly, arguably more poppy, even than long live rock and roll, because you can line up those songs and say there's an LA connection there. There's a sensitive to light there. There's a rainbow eyes ballad there. Um, the shed is not even particularly super heavy all the time. Uh, long live rock and roll is a little sing songy, you know, that's, that's what they kind of level it all night long on this one. Um, so, and then obviously the Joe Lynn Turner albums are, are all poppier than this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I just feel like, um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it, per it totally slays any of the Joe Lynn Turner albums for me as well. So I was left with that and that's why I did, we did a contrarian where this was my pick for rainbow. It is my favorite rainbow album. Um, you know, and there's a little bit of that thing that happens also with a lot of fans and it happens with me and people kind of get surprised too, but sometimes on the super, super, super old stuff by bands, I get this sort of like, uh, it's depressing me feeling like volume four, black Sabbath, paranoid, black Sabbath, black Sabbath, not black Sabbath, master reality, which I totally love. But, you know, I get, I get heck for, for kind of putting deep purple in rock down sometimes because it just, you know, you get you get far enough back in a catalog and it does have this agedness to it. Right. Um, and and usually that has has to do somewhat with the production. But sometimes there's bluesiness and psychedelicness and stuff like that. But with Rainbow, anyways, um, I find the first three Rainbow albums do have quite an antique feel to it. So I, I don't I don't mind the fact that this feels a little bit more professional and updated and nimble on its feet. Um, and, and better produced, uh, I thought. Um, and like I say, I, I think it's, uh, it's basically just as heavy as long live rock and roll. Maybe not quite as heavy as rising because rising is that famous rainbow album. Like when we got that as, as kids, it was like the first record ever. That was what we called a perfect album. It had nothing mellow on it, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing at all. And it literally was the first one. Um, that we had ever heard. So we loved it for that. It was a six out of six, basically, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So, um, so I mean, there's, there's some reasons kind of to get you started. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know with John, if he could have rated all the, the tracks on Rising a six, he, he would have, but we, we kind of cut our, our, uh, <laughs> we, we cut off our, um, our rating system at five. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it's six out of six songs, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. Or if you ask yeah. Richie, nine. As we've yeah. Talked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or or Ronnie doesn't he doesn't I mean he I, it was shocking to see him kind of put down light in the black right because there's so much instrumental stuff on it right but uh, anyways. Yeah, and I, I we had played some of like one of that interview that like tour bus interview he does where he just kind of yeah trashes Rising and how he talks about how much he really liked the 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 first album. Um, yeah. I don't get that at all. <laughs> Yeah, we were kind of surprised because we had a very like warm feeling towards the, uh, you know, our, our memories of the first album. But upon re-listening to it very critically on the show, um, 
we we quickly realized yeah it has some like you said that a little bit of that antique feeling to it and also just it's it's a little disjointed it's more of a collection of songs than a complete album yeah and it's uh, you know starting off the band with black sheep of the family and oh man it's you know if you don't like rock and roll there's and and the production you know the playing you can tell this band is not exactly thinking in a heavy metal frame of mind right um some interesting little arrangements on it but uh, but i've just never been much of a fan i mean obviously just like anybody else for me it's mostly about like 16th century green sleeves a man on the silver mountain and then next move on you know right right <laughs> yeah well, cool. Um, so you said in your in your book, uh, you argued that uh, the success of this album had more to do with the new wave of British heavy metal than it did with the with the singles on the album. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I meant success. I, yeah, I mean, I suppose because essentially, um, you know, these records, um, this is coming out at a time and it was well received by, you know, this burgeoning metal scene, which is basically it's a 79 album and we're moving into 1980. 1980 is kind of the start of the new wave of the British heavy metal ends in, say, 1983. But I, I remember, you know, there were always a lot of ads for this and a lot of singles came out and there was some griping about the singles on it. But I suppose if I said that, I, I suppose what I meant is that it didn't really make much of a dent in America either. So it's it's like it doesn't have any success, really. I mean, in fact, it's only success come to think of it. I mean, I, I suppose since you've been gone and and all night long were somewhat successful singles in in the UK. But I really don't remember this album making any of a dent whatsoever in North America. Um, you know, it, it didn't take them to any next level. And, you know, again, I want to I want to reiterate that uh, that. Um, I, I just really think that songs like, uh, what do we got here? Eyes of the World, No Time to Lose, even though even though it's a little party, a little circular riff, but it's pretty heavy. Love's No Friend is heavy. Danger Zone, totally heavy. And Lost in Hollywood, totally, totally heavy. My favorite uh, rainbow song of all time by a long shot. Um, so, so again, when people call this album poppy, I think they're being, like, it's bizarre. People call Saxon Power and the Glory some kind of poppy thing because they made it in North America or, you know, they made it in Atlanta or whatever. And that album's just like searingly heavy throughout. It's so much heavier than anything they've ever done. So it's almost like, it's almost like when you hear people talk about some, some journalist going to a live show or reviewing a live show and then kind of they, I'm slipping up and saying something that they didn't even go right. Um, it, it that reminds me a little bit of what they say about that Saxon album and a little bit of this Rainbow album. But it, but with the Rainbow, to be fair, when people call it poppy, they're just doing that lazy thing, and all they're thinking about in their mind is since you've been gone, and all night long basically has a poppy verse, but even the chorus is totally heavy metal. And of course, they're not even thinking of making love because they don't even know that song, right? So they're all they're thinking of is is about one and a half songs that they might have heard on the radio, and one of them's a cover, ooh, bad, you know, and all that, right? <laughs> and that's literally it. And the whole rest of the album is as heavy as anything they've ever done. Well, I know uh, John and I, growing up, were familiar with "Since You've Been Gone." I got a lot of radio play in the U.S., but all night long, honestly, I had never heard it until I listened to this album. Um, even but you know, was, when you say that about since you've been gone, I swear to God, not you guys, because you guys are geniuses, but <laughs> most people, way too much most people, there. if they made that statement, half half of my brain is telling me they're talking about the Headies version in their mind, right? They're 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 not talking only about this version. And for all I know, there might have been a minor hit of this song by somebody else. But I mean, the Head East one is the one you hear all the time. And I swear people are just lazily not even making the distinction between Rainbow and Head East. That's quite possible. I, I, it seems to me, and we've, we've talked about this on the show, there, there tends to be this, like you said, this kind of lazy or knee-jerk reaction to a lot of things. And uh, they hear whatever their friends or other people say it. And it just, it gets this momentum and you can never get out of it. It's like, Oh, that album, that's the poppy one. Oh, they have since you've been gone. Oh, that was all pop or, you know, come taste the band. Oh, it's a terrible album. It's not really deep purple or whatever, whatever it is. There's all of these things you hear repeated again and again and again. Yeah. Uh, this album's terrible. This album's a masterpiece. And um, it's really hard to, to crack 
to break through. We've got a lot of great listeners who listen to us, even though we will have some contrarian views sometimes. And they'll even if they don't agree with us, they enjoy listening to it. But so many people are just shut down and they made their mind up in 1972 and they don't want to listen to anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I actually did a, and we did an episode of the contrarians on deep purple and I picked perfect strangers and some of the argument I made about perfect strangers being my favorite deep purple album applies to this as well. And, but even more so with deep purple. And the point there was that everybody remembers fondly their favorite songs on every deep purple album. But when you actually do the math in your head and figure out how much of the album you really, really love, Perfect Strangers came out with that much higher percentage for me. And that's why I picked it. So, so there's a lot of the, and rainbow rainbows a bit like that as well. I mean, like I say, I, I think one of the reasons I picked this over the previous two is that I probably like and love maybe uh, two more songs on it than either of the previous two. That makes sense. So speaking of your favorite uh, song, you just released, or I don't know if you just released it, but I, I, I got an email the other day for your ebook. So of course I, I purchased it right away, your top 20 rainbow songs. And uh, just want to give that a plug because I think it's a really interesting, very quick read. Uh, it's only, um, how many pages? Is it 20 pages, page per page. Yeah, well, it's not even, it's a fake 20 pages. I mean, the idea, <laughs> the idea with those is that I've been, I've been looking for like, I, I thought, what kind of product can I come up with that that I can write about that also builds off of any sort of homework I do when I go on Pete's show about a band? Like we were doing these deep cut dives and, and album worst to first and all this stuff. So I kind of shadowed. I mean, we did a Blackfoot one, so I did a Blackfoot one of these. And so I thought, I'm going to try to invent this product. It's a 99 cent Canadian product, so it costs people 75 cents, right? So, so it's essentially like asking people to pay for a long magazine article, pay me 75 cents. Right. Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's a whole different kind of pay thing. And I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll write a whole bunch of these. And the other thing I did with them is I thought I'm going to ex, uh, experiment with my um, speaking it into voice recognition software and then cleaning it up. Right. Oh, wow. But I found that all of these really take about, three hours of a piece to do. I was, I was hoping they would take me two hours or even an hour. Right. And that's not the case because you're still friggin' having to look up all sorts of stuff all the time that you thought you knew. Right. Like today I was comparing, uh, I was writing in my, uh, a snowy white article, right. I was comparing them to JJ Kale, Jerry Rafferty. And who was the other one? JJ Kale, Jerry Rafferty. Anyways, three, three guys, Mark Knopfler, and I thought, and I have to, I had to friggin' look up every single one of those guys on Google just to make sure I was spelling their name right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you put dots between the J's. You put a space. Mark Knopf. I don't know how to spell Knopfler off the top of my head. Right. So Jerry Rafferty, you got to make sure it's not Raffery, you know, or something. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Sometimes you think it's like, or is it Thompson with a P or Thompson with no P? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, all of those, all, all the different Townsends and all the Vinnie Paul versus Vinnie Apice, you know, you know it, you forget it, you know it. I, I like 30 times I've done that one. Right. So, so they, they took, longer than I thought. And they're not selling that great, but I've done about 10 of them now or something or eight or something. Right. So I may continue on with it. And then the other thing I thought with them is that if I do all these things, is it kind of a good enough idea to anthologize them all in a print book at the end anyways, and get some extra mileage out of it. So anyways, that's, that's why I did this rainbow thing. And, and because I went on Pete's show. So, um, and it's a neat exercise. I mean, I, I always like these lists uh, that people do too. So. Oh yeah, it's it's really great. I th I enjoy the lists, and John and I have talked about this a number of times. Is it's um, I I love lists. Like somebody the other day on one of the Deep Purple groups on Facebook, which I should not even be a part of. I, I just kind of lurk and observe because if you even try to post on them, people will just they're just yelling at each other about how it's not if it's not Blackmore, it's not purple, and all that tired stuff. Um, but somebody posted like, here's my top 11 deep purple albums. And it was like the last 11 albums you'd ever think of. It was, it was um, an amazing listen. I had so much fun re like reading his reasoning behind it. Um, and, you know, while I didn't agree with his list at all, I, I really thought it was 
cool because it's his list. I don't I don't care what it, he doesn't have to like the same ones that I do. Uh, but so many people take it so personally. Like I'm sure over the years you've had to get backlash from that. How do you deal with people telling you you're how can you not say in rock is the best or whatever? Yeah. Well, you know, and and I really don't like when people are just being contrarian just to be contrarian. Like, ha ha, look at my crazy list, right? <laughs> I never do that. Right? Never ever do that. But. Um, you know, and, and I, I always have those debates too with, you know, I have a lot of people who say um, basically the, the voting public who votes with turning something gold or platinum or double platinum is correct. That is the correct answer. Or there are most iconic songs. You can't argue against their most iconic songs, and blah, blah, blah. So people sometimes do think I'm being contrarian just for the heck of it, but that's not the case. I mean, with many bands, my favorite albums are the massive albums of theirs, right? And I'm not a hater of the police or, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of big bands that you're not supposed to like, I totally can like, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. You get in these arguments and you, you guys probably realize, I mean, certain types of fans are more um, belligerent and, and trolly than others. And I think Led Zeppelin fans I've, I've found are worse than Deep Purple fans, I would say, in terms of being like, they can do no wrong. So don't ever say oh, anything yeah. about <laughs> any of the stuff. It's, it's bizarre. It's almost like there's a little cult, you know, for, for Led Zeppelin. It's really strange, um, you know, because we've had this big argument about uh, the meaning of the word overrated or underrated, right? Oh, and I go yeah. with this big rant about, well, Led Zeppelin, you could say they're overrated for all of these reasons. And one of those reasons is they're rated as the greatest band of all time. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to be overrated when you're rated as the greatest band of all time. So I start with that, but that just goes over everybody's head. <laughs> no, they're not overrated. I Shut up. Just, <laughs> yeah. I always just think every to me, I, I lately I've been thinking, isn't everybody just rated exactly how they should be rated? You know what I mean? Like, is there a, a such thing as overrated and under like if if Led Zeppelin is I don't they're not my favorite band of all time, but a lot of people make the argument that they're the best band ever. And I, I think certainly it could be made. Well, Pete and I did an episode on this and we went to pains to come up with why we were doing this and what the meaning of underrated was. And one of the things I consider in the underrated thing, one thing I said was that if you take this band's album and you go, if the business, if they didn't have bad business luck for whatever reason, I could literally think of six songs on here that I could just picture on the radio as massive hit singles. Mm -hmm. And yet it didn't even go gold and it had no singles. So there's certain things like that where you go, this is as good as, you know, like, like I always, you know, go on about the band love hate in the hair metal market. And, you know, cause they're a little comparable to like uh, guns and roses in a way. Right. But I think love hates wasted in America is like triple the most amazing album than the guns and roses album, which is 30 times platinum or whatever it is. And that one didn't even go gold. So, so sometimes, you know, you can make those comparisons and, uh, but, but basically, basically it comes down to, uh, this does sound like the whole world could even love it. So that's when I get in arguments with people and they say, Oh man, Max Webster was so underrated. And it's like, I go, hang on a second. I've called them my favorite band of all time. And I don't even think they're underrated. They're just too weird to be huge. So by one <laughs> definition, you, you can, you can have those arguments, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With the underrated thing is always, uh, that's, that's an interesting one to me as well. I think it's, I think that one's an easier case to make. Like if you, we've spent a lot of time on the show talking about and reviewing uh, all the captain beyond albums. And that's one of those ones where, um, maybe not so with the second two albums, but with the first album, you think if the, if they had had better management, a little bit more marketing push behind them, I could I could see that album having having gone further. See, I always always get in arguments with people about that one because I actually played it right through about three weeks ago while jogging, and I went, "This thing is crap." I mean, this is this is. This is barely heavy for 1973, but it sounds like 1969. It's, it's dated as hell for 1973, number one. It's really dated. I mean, we've already got Montrose, Montrose. We've already got three or four Sabbath albums. Keep is already up to Sweet Freedom. Um, Kiss and Aerosmith are right around the corner. I mean, that record does not, uh, to me, to me, that record, that, that's one where I get in a lot of arguments with people because I play it and I go, 
you know, this is this is proggy and weird, and this part goes to here, <laughs> and the singer's not very dynamic, and everything sounds like friggin' Iron Butterfly from 1970, yet it's 1973. So so that's what I, I kind of disagree with people on. I I, I think that this this is already past. This is this is old heavy metal at this point. Yeah. There you go. I can <laughs> see that. But no, I, I understand. I mean, it's a cult favorite and it's quite heavy for 1973 and it's pretty riffy. But I tell you, I swear to God, most people, when they think of that album, are just thinking of the of those those three or four, not even songs, but three or four super heavy, awesome riffy parts. And they're forgetting how dull large swaths of it are. If there's one I, uh, criticism that. I could think of from the album it's that they do they do break into these amazing riffs but everything changes so quickly you could start like yeah i'm really grooving on this and then boom they're on to the next part of the song um yeah. and yeah that can be a, a little much well, we love like, it like I, I just, just the only part i always remember is when they're going along then all of a sudden yeah yeah that that's a awesome riff right and that that thing kicks in right but uh i don't know man <laughs> I, I just, uh, I, I listen to that, you know, I, I put on my Monty Connor A&R hat. That's what I call it. Right. And I go, <laughs> this is, this is time has passed you guys by, man. This is, uh, this is, this sounds like it's three years too late. That's actually a really good point. I never thought about it until now. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it had come out maybe three years earlier. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you put that up against, maybe it would have been. Yeah. You put it up against Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath, the first atomic rooster, anything by MC five, anything by the Stooges, uh, first King Crimson album. But I mean, in rock already is way beyond that album. Machine heads way beyond that album. Fireball is way beyond that album. The first couple of heaps are way beyond that album. It's a little bit, it can compete with Salisbury because Salisbury's crap, but <laughs> Um, you know, but look at yourself as way better, you know? So yeah, it's, it's I mean, one thing that Nate and I agreed on is that the, uh, the production on it was, was pretty great. Um, yeah, it's pretty I mean, good at least for the yeah. time, because there's a lot of albums around that time that didn't sound that good. So, I mean, I was always um, impressed by the production on it. Yeah. Boy, I just did an episode of my podcast called, um, the heaviest U S albums of the seventies. And one of the five I just listened to it this afternoon. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And so one of the five of, of the whole thing was Montrose from 1973. And you just play that and you go, yeah. man, this thing sounds so modern, right? Just everything, production, performance, the songwriting. It's like, wow. It's like, where did that thing come from? You know? It's truly astonishing that. Oh, yeah, that I agree. And now that's yeah. The, yeah. the um the production thing that gets to me is is how something from 1968 and something from 1973 can sound like they were produced 20 years apart um yeah. if you take your average 1968 album your average 1973 album and i i think that's what what i can where i can see your point of view about captain beyond is is it's funny to say oh if that album had come out three years earlier but i mean nowadays that wouldn't make any difference at all but three years no. back then is yeah. might as well be a different a different lifetime yeah. So getting back to down to earth, getting getting down to earth here. Um, so you, you gave us a little bit of uh, a rundown on some of the tracks. Um, uh, I got a. It was something I forgot to bring up actually with you, John, which I should have. Since John's a huge Kiss fan, is uh, Steve Pilkington made the comment about uh, the song um, uh, about making love sounding like it could be reminiscent of a Kiss song. What do you guys think about that? Mm -hmm. I think he's just remembering the title. <laughs> yeah, that's, that title would probably be more vulgar if it was a Kiss yeah. song. <laughs> no, they have a song called "Making Love." <laughs> they have a heavy song called "Making Love." It's one of their more famous heavy songs, right? And that song, and yeah, and that song on its own is um, uh, really reminiscent of a Zeppelin song. So yeah, "Making Love" doesn't sound anything like this. "Making Love." One's a ballad, and that's actually one of the heaviest Kiss songs of the early days, right? of the mid days song. Yeah, that one's, um, yeah, that one's a rock and roll over. Yeah. Yeah. So, honestly, I think I, had it in the set for a while. I swear that comment is just remembering the title because to me, this song does not sound like a kiss song. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking, but uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not well versed enough in kiss to really make that call one way or the other. 
Well, maybe it was just the title that made him think. Yeah, that. it is. It, I swear to God, it is. Because because you think about it, the song is like, it's almost like a Blackmore's Night song. It's like a Renaissance med- medieval music ballad. So Kiss does not do that. <laughs> no, not, not a lot of Renaissance uh, style Kiss songs. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're talking about music from the Elder. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so... Talk, t- uh, talking back to your book again, sensitive to light. So this is kind of a fairly recent, like within the last year or so, right? That you you basically added on to your previous Rainbow book and then expanded yeah. on it, right? Yeah. Um, lots of just what I love about your writing style and the way you do your books is there's a really good mix of quotes and then your own kind of opinions thrown in there and sometimes it can be a little too much of one or the other in a lot of these rock books and uh, i'm sure most of it comes to the fact that you have what 85 books so you've def you've got it down to a science now <laughs> of how to how to really put out a, a high quality book and you're one of the best in the business um you're so you've obviously had a lot of of interviews and interactions with the fellas from rainbow and, and speaking of, of this album, can you, do you have any memor- memorable interactions or, or quotes that you can remember from those guys? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely talked at length to Graham about it and um, you know, Graham funny situation. He, rem- he even reminds me a little bit of snowy white who I just interviewed and it was the same sort of enigmatic. I don't really fit in this world thing, but here I am doing it, you know, when he was in Thin Lizzy. But so Graham comes into this band and doesn't write. He's never been a writer. He comes into the band on the strength of the only one woman song. Right. Um, And so he's in there and everybody's kind of like a little shocked that he's not writing the songs. He doesn't have any ideas. So that's that's a quote, I think, from Richie Blackmore that he told me. So Richie told me a bit about this album. Graham told me a bit about it. And even in later years, in fact, I think. One of the times I talked to Graham is even post that book coming out. I, I don't know if I asked him any, any more about it, but, but yeah, he remembers coming into, uh, in, into the band and, uh, you know, there were a lot of singers audition. There were bass players. Um, but I think the most I got uh, on this era is probably from Roger. And he said some interesting things about first coming in and having to mediate between Richie and Ronnie who kind of weren't talking to each other and Ronnie wasn't really into the project and Richie's trying to do marriage counselor between them to get back together and it doesn't work. And then Roger's producing and then, and then basically cozy looks at him one day and says, you're doing this. You're playing the bass now. Why aren't you in the band? Like let's join, let's join you up into this band. So they're recording in France at this castle using the mobile. And uh, yeah, so Richie, that's right. Richie, Richie and uh, who else told me this? Richie definitely mentioned the chocolates, right? Like, like he said he'd go to he'd go to uh, Cozy's room in the in the uh, in the castle, and Cozy would say, "Oh, come on in, Richie. Let's have a talk. What do you want for chocolates? I've got crunchy on this one. I've got Kit Kat here. I've got milk creams over here." And Richie says the, the funny quote in the book is, "He says." Cozy, yeah, he was like a little granny. <laughs> and then someone else, yeah, and, and someone else was talking about where when he was in England, he had the same thing. He had all these chocolates all laid out. And then and then uh, one of them was saying about how uh, Cozy would uh, jump in his car and drive off at high speed to go home after recording. You know, like he'd be going back, back and forth to England all the time. But uh, no, never interviewed Cozy before. Uh, who else is in the band? Don Airy. I, I can't remember any memorable quotes from Don, but I have interviewed Don a few times as well. Nice guy. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's a pretty colorful little recording session doing this thing in, in France and a lot of pranks. Right. The guys are mentioning the various Richie Blackmore pranks they would pull in the castle and stuff. And uh, but, yeah, all these all these personal personnel culminations between all these auditions and everything. There was a there's a good little background on that who, who tried out for things. Uh, and I, I just remember Peter Golby from Your I Heap, who I did a Contrarians episode on. My favorite Heap album is Abominant, right? And so I guess Peter Golby, they, it, it's I uh, had a quote from someone saying that he um auditioned over the phone for the band so that would have been amazing peter golby getting in the band but then we wouldn't have gotten the awesome peter golby years uh, in uh, your heap i suppose or maybe um, we still would have given uh, given the rotating door and rainbow <laughs> what's that given given how fast rainbow was turning over maybe we still would have. yeah 
Exactly. Maybe he would have been back by then already. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, what do you think would have happened if um, if Deep Purple hadn't gotten back together? It seems like with Jill and Turner, they were approaching probably the closest thing to stability they had since Rainbow formed. Do you think that that could have continued on? Yeah. So they did three albums, right? And uh, and you know, I mean, they were doing okay, but I think they were still getting frustrated that they weren't doing gold. I mean, in the States, they were probably doing, I would estimate around 200,000 copies a, a, a time out with those records. Sounds like a reasonable number, right? Um, but, uh, you know, and they were kind of made for, uh, kind of made for MTV. They, they, they looked good up there, right? Joe, Joe kind of, you know, I mean, he, he has a little bit too much vampingness to him, right? He's a little, he's a little bit too much of a ham, I suppose. But generally, I mean, uh, and I love my favorite of all three of those is the last one the, the, you know, bent out of shape to me sounds, it's just got this nice unity and, uh, and, um, kind of darkness and sparseness to it that the other two don't have. I'm, I'm not crazy about the previous two. I find them patchy. Like they're trying to check off all the boxes mm -hmm. of, uh, of the different kinds of songs they have to do. And I, and, and I don't know, something about them just seems uh, like a quilt work, but, uh, but the last one almost feels like a concept album to me. I just, I just love, it just feels like there's this cool identity that they had discovered by that point. So yeah, it would have been nice to see them continue on, but I guess, I mean, you could call it stability, but you almost think that, that um, Joe Lynn probably would be out the door for the next album if they stuck together anymore, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a weird idea and it's a weird thought, but, but it almost feels like that's, that's kind of the standard. It's like, you know, if you don't have that much success for that long, I mean, Richie was probably really getting frustrated. He might even want to change direction at that point. Perhaps why he was so, or why he, why he was able to be convinced to join Deep Purple again. Yeah. 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 It's, it, it seems like there's all of these, these albums. There's so many albums with rainbow just going down the list where may, maybe it was the band had written everything with a previous singer and they're gone. Somebody's singing, writing new lyrics or, or taking over where someone left off. And it just, and that's like where you talk about that patchwork, like a difficult to cure and um, even, um, uh, yeah, even yeah. Down, down to earth to, to, to a certain point, although it does work very well. Um, I can't imagine that that's the, uh, that's always the, 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 the best way to go about it. It's, it, it, yeah. it and it, it seems like Graham never really felt too, too, uh, involved in that band. Like he just was kind of this very quick thing that moved through. Yeah. You know, I, I was, I was thinking maybe this is the band that had the most talent in it, the down to earth band. But when you think about it, you know, with Graham being a little bit of the weak link and he's not in there writing per se. Um, but you think of the rest of the guys you get, you got, you know, an uncommonly strong opinion, opinionated drummer and cozy. And I think this is the album with cozy's best performance. I'm not a big cozy fan. I don't, don't really like his drumming very much. But I think Lost in Hollywood is the greatest he ever got as a drummer. I just love everything he does on that song. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, but I think, um, you know, you've got this very talented, opinionated drummer. You've got Roger Glover, who's like Mr. Fix-It Man, can do anything. You've got Richie, super talented. You've got Don Airy, super talented. So, you know, this might have been the band with the most... Uh, the most uh, professional firepower uh, out of out of every every all of them, if you think about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we 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 talk obviously we're the Deep Purple podcast, so we talk a lot about about Richie. Um, do you? I mean, what's your sense from talking with Richie? Like, what do you feel? <sighs> From that era, what do you feel like he was looking for? You talked a little bit about that 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 radio success and and all that. Like, what do you think it was that that caused him to continually shift things around? Well, I mean, I think at at one point he did get nervous about we got to really try to make some more money at this. That's one thing. But I mean, he also um, is a true lover of songcraft and songs. And you know, he he often you often hear him joke about like an ABBA or whatever. But you know, I think he quite liked what Foreigner was doing, and this was this whole Joe Lynn Turner thing. But um, but I I really think um, you know generally you think of Richie having this huge ego, but I I think he really did uh, he 
really did serve the song on those Joe Lynn Turner albums. And, and he, he could play spare and he could play really tasty. Um, it wasn't all about soloing and jamming and stuff like that. So I, you know, there were a lot of open spaces. The keyboards were prominent. Um, the drum beats were simple. So, um, I think it was, was quite commendable what he was doing there. He, he's just, I, I mean, it shows a level, a, a pretty decent level of fearless creativity, as does Blackmore's Night, to be able to just switch and do that and say, nope, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to make 15 albums of it, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of cool that he, that he did do these rapid changes a, a, across the band. Um, so you, you got to give him kudos for that. And like I say, not, not really making it all about himself. It, it really wasn't by the end of the band. Yeah. He even took the Richie Blackmore's name off of it. <laughs> Just called it. Yeah. Rainbow. Well, yeah. well he, he, he did that right at the beginning for the first album. And then he stuck it back on for the messy, you know, late period, non rainbow, Richie Blackmore's rainbow album you know, just causes a, a nice big mess, right? To have this one outlier album hanging out back there. Love that title though. Stranger in us all. What a great title. That's a, you know, great title. Good. Yeah. I, I listened to that one recently and was actually, uh, I, I, to me, it aged better than I thought it would. Yeah. I still don't like it very much. I mean, I, I really find the production really thin and, and it just feels it, it almost, that one almost feels like he was trying to do, he was trying to write medieval and Egypto and Turkish or whatever the hell term you want to use for that. And then, but he wanted to record it pop, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's really odd. Yeah. I, I don't know. Just still not a fan of it very much. I guess he, he finally got to that direction with Blackmore's night that he wanted to go. And uh, as much, as much crap as everybody gives him about it, um, uh, you know, it's what he wants to do. And he, like you said, he's but what, 15 albums in or however many yeah. it is with them. So it's working well um all right well uh you know i want to be respectful of your time i know you've got probably like 12 more podcasts lined up tonight and <laughs> another book to finish and yeah, yeah. No, nothing else tonight <laughs> if you've got anything else to ask we, we, could, uh, we could talk about it have we, have we said any everything we need to say about this record i don't know i don't know like like i said it's such a it's such a brief um period in rainbow history uh and, and I, here as well Oh, very nice. Oh, beautiful. A signed copy. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I got Graham and Don on that one, but only Graham on this one. When he came through for Michael Schenker Fest, right? Oh, nice. Got my, uh, got my rising back here, right? This one's got Ronnie, Jimmy, and, and Kelly on it. Wow. Nice. That's nice. So beautiful but uh no you know and man what a crappy album cover this down-to-earth album cover man it's just so uh it's just so weird eh? it looks like a disco album right and it literally does it looks, and this was this is when disco was big so it does look like a disco album hmm, that's a good point you really you don't like the cover no i don't think so i mean it's iconic because i love the album so much so i never think about the cover very much and not yeah. like you know, it's a little bit like the name of the band, The Police, or the name of the band, The Cars. Eventually, you stop realizing how stupid it sounds. <laughs> because it actually means more, the police almost means more thinking of those three guys than it does thinking about law enforcement, right? <laughs> so so, so I, I never really think about this record very much, or this cover very much as being bad, just because it's such a big part of heavy metal fabric, right? Heavy metal culture, right? Because we were reviewing the the when we were reviewing the cover last week, um, Nate uh, uh, Nate and I really liked it. I mean, I was talking about how much I liked it more than I thought I did. I never thought of it as a kind of a disco looking album cover, but um, you know that's yeah. a great point. But that's that's probably one of my terrible. favorites next yeah. to uh, next to Rising. I think Rising is better, but I mean, I really like this one, and I don't know why um, because it is pretty Fresh simple, and colorful, right? It's, it's energetic looking, right? Yeah, I think it's because it's colorful. Uh, yeah. The same reason I like the Rising album cover, but for much different reasons. It's not really down to earth. It's more like orbiting the earth, right? <laughs> Maybe it's going in. It's going backwards along that rainbow. It's, you're seeing it in reverse. Oh yeah, it's a rainbow. I never even thought of that. I, I, that's weird. I never even noticed it as a rainbow. I just thought it was like some something circling the uh, the earth. Wow, that's crazy. So yeah, so uh, so you're right. It's a rainbow. So it starts on Earth, and it's gonna 
it's going to join back up on the earth. Huh. I never noticed that. Makes sense. I like the uh, the episodes you've been doing recently. You've done a few of them about best and worst album covers, and I, I we we talk a lot on the probably more than we should on an audio podcast about album covers. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it is kind of fascinating. John, of course, what's your least favorite Rainbow album cover? Oh, straight between the <laughs> eyes. Yeah, that's uh, that's a horrible one, and and bent out of shape. Yeah. It's not very good either. You know, it's it's kind of just too dated in the '80s, kind of too stylish. Difficult to cure is awesome. Yeah, uh, long live rock and roll is pretty cool. Rising's obviously totally iconic. The first one's pretty cool. First one looks like a disco album cover. Yeah, too. <laughs> I can see that one too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but uh, straight between the eyes is almost like. Uh, it's almost like it was uh, they they invented it for the Spinal Tap movie or something. You know? Yeah, it's like the first Anthrax album cover, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, it does. It looks like the same face. Yeah, yeah, it does. wow, it does. I Maybe mean, it was the same artist. I don't know. Yeah, you're seeing the top part of the face and the yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not great. Yeah, Bent Out of Shape is doesn't really do that album justice either. Like you said, it's very bland. It's got that sickly green color, and then it's yeah. just like. The actual artwork of it, it doesn't make a heck. I mean, it makes a little sense, but looks like a bit like a Pink Floyd '80s album cover, right? Yeah, I could Hmm. see that, or Roger Waters solo, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that was the thing to me when I was younger that was never appealing about those later Rainbow albums because I always talk about how I, for years, just listened to the first three and then anything after Ronnie, I didn't want to hear about it because, you know, I'd walk into a uh, record store and I just see all these these album covers and you see down to earth, you'd see bent out of shape and they just look like they looked like pop albums. And I didn't want to hear that. So I think the way it was marketed had a lot to do with why I stayed away from them for so many years. Cause I didn't want to spend my allowance on that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and just to make one more point, you know, I'm thinking as you're, as you're comparing these albums, you know, I, I think, I think I, this might be sacrilege, but I think cozy's performance on long live rock and roll and rising kind of take there there's not a lot of groove it just seems like really bashy you know and and martin birch's production is is very unyielding in that sense too it's noisy and bashy right and and i just think everything is just like nicely tightened up and the and the fidelity even though down to earth is is still lacking a little in the bass and lacking a little in the treble it's uh, it's all it's all it's a little wider and and it just seems like this tight little uh you know feisty band just kicking ass throughout the whole thing and cozy kind of fits in so it's it's definitely not very cozy feeling i don't think yeah i can i can definitely see that um Mm. it's uh yeah i i I think i think roger's production really took them in that new direction and to me the the jlt stuff can sometimes be a little bit too Mm. on that 80s side where I, I don't it doesn't resonate as much with me and I, I feel like the thing I really love about this album is it seems like a bridge between the Dio era and the, the JLT era and it and it it takes the best parts of both for me both in the playing the, the songwriting and the production and that's why I, we haven't like done full reviews of the last two JLT albums we've done everything else by Rainbow on the show but I'm, I'm going to be interested to see where this one falls in the in the in the lineup of all these albums if it's not my favorite it's probably number 2 after Rising mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and I think most fans won't won't put it any oh you know god i i swear i probably most rainbow fans would put it number four i mean usually usually they'll probably go rising long live rock and roll and and for some god-awful reason they'll stick the the first one uh i i hear a lot of people just love that record so they'll put that record third and then and then this one so so this record is not going to come up very high in most people's lists i don't think you think of Eyes of the World and Danger Zone and Lost in Hollywood. It's like, man, they never got any better than that, you know? Well, like you talked about that kind of knee-jerk reaction. And I think if you if if they if they sat down, like for me, and it's, of course it's easy for me to say we're doing this show, so I've had to expose myself to albums that I may have written off or just not given a fair shake. And you sit down and really force yourself to listen to it critically and you think, wow, that's way, has happened so many times. I say that's way 
better than I ever gave it credit for, than I remember. I haven't listened to this album in 15, 20 years, so listening to it now, I'm 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 really shocked how much I'm enjoying it. So it's nice to always ha- have that continued experience. Right on. Okay, guys, yeah, that's very cool about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Good. Right. Well. Martin, I want to really thank you for stopping by. I want to, um, again, recommend your book and your your new 99 cent, or as you said, 75 cent U.S. uh, Top top 20 rainbow songs. Guys, you can't afford not to buy it at that price. You have to pick this up. It's a PDF. It's a really fun read. Uh, Go through go through this list. I'm not going to give the you already gave the the number one away, but I won't give any of the other ones away. Um, But you got to check it out. It's really interesting stuff. And uh, we really appreciate you stopping by. Absolutely. Thanks again, guys. Very cool. Thanks so much. Yeah. Talk to you soon. You later. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. But he, he brought up all that shit about Captain Beyond, and I'm just like, fuck, I love a <laughs> shitty album. I mean, <laughs> I was like, God damn it, he's right about everything. <laughs>